Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Bagnasco. I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Dr. Jason LaBelle is a professor of anthropology at Colorado State University. He is the director of a research lab called the Center for Mountain and Plains Archaeology, and he serves as the curator for the archaeological repository at CSU. He specializes in the study of hunter-gatherers, specifically pre- and post-contact Native American cultures of the Intermountain West. He and his students research the early peopling of the North American continent, including such topics as high-altitude and mountain archaeology, communal hunting, and lithic technology, which is a sciencey term for stone tools. We talked about some of the incredible archaeological sites found throughout Colorado that helped tell the stories of the first people in the Americas. These sites include ancient hunting grounds and high mountain passes and camps in the plains, the oldest evidence dating back to over 12,000 years ago. Dr. LaBelle's research and his ability to communicate it to a larger audience opens up a window to our shared past connecting us to an ancient story of survival. It's fascinating to speculate on the lives these people lived and hard to imagine how they withstood it all. This has to be one of my favorite interviews to date, and you can be sure I'll be delving into anthropology and archaeology in future episodes as well. So thank you, Dr. LaBelle. Lastly, special thanks to some dude named Tom Richards, who left a really thoughtful and encouraging review on iTunes this week. Thanks, Tom. Here's episode 42. To set the stage here, can you kind of give me some background on yourself? Did you grow up in Colorado? Yeah, I moved to, to Colorado when I was a kid and kind of went to schools in Colorado and Wyoming, kind of got to know the the, um, the, the mountains and plains pretty well and uh, ended up going to um, my undergrad degrees from Colorado State University. Uh, and then I went away to graduate school in Texas and I had done a lot of work in the Northern Plains and never imagined I'd make it back to Colorado, but my alma mater actually hired me as a professor, uh, and I've been there since 2005. Okay, nice. When did you start picking up old stuff? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you spend a lot of time outside, you know, you, you and you walk around enough, you see stuff on the ground, and, you know, it kind of started off with fossils for me, and then, and then when you start seeing, like, artifacts, historic artifacts, you know, broken glass and barbed wire and things like that. And then sort of seeing chip stone uh, from, from ancient native cultures. I mean, it starts to intrigue you. And, you know, like a lot of us, you're, you're interested, but then you start looking for information and there wasn't much that I could find. And so it kind of just piqued the interest. So that, I mean, that was me as a kid. I mean, I've wanted to do this for a very long time just because you know, everybody's really interested in treasure and shipwrecks and stuff like right. that, as, as was I as a little kid. Uh, but here I was in the high plains, about as far away you get from Florida as possible for Spanish galleons. Um, <laughs> but I still love that, the idea of searching for the past and trying to figure out what it meant. Um, and so somehow I managed that to make a decur out of it. What's interesting, I grew up in central Texas, and we we had a little property on this limestone escarpment and there were Cretaceous fossils all over the place when, from when Texas was underwater. Um, can you help me with the dates there? What is it, 100 million years ago? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're, I mean, the seas are coming and going. I mean, Colorado was under the water at the same time. Yep. Oh, wow. So I'm finding these ancient, ancient fossils. But for some reason, I'm always much more fascinated by more recent archaeological finds from people. There's something that just stirs your imagination much more when it involves human ancestors yeah absolutely you know and, and for me it's like um archaeology is a way to, to learn about these people and and to really give them some stories that we might not know otherwise and, and to really foster appreciation for them and um and you know there really aren't many places on this planet that had been used by humans uh you know within the last fifty thousand years and so right. you kind of leave a lot of signatures all over the place but you have to kind of have a subtle eye to be able to see them and and once you train your eye to it, as you probably know, I mean, uh, that evidence is pretty widespread. Um, but again, not yeah. necessarily appreciated by many people. Yeah. 
I, I personally became interested in a lot of this in my undergraduate studies at Texas Christian University, not far from, from where you are, at, uh, where you were at SMU. And uh, I took some anthropology classes and just became so fascinated by, by this world, especially sort of the methodology behind interpreting these sites is just really fascinating to me. So I want to get into some of that to, to give folks a sort of a, a map here, a mental map of where we are in history. Can you lay out the, the, the periods of North American prehistory and where your focus lies in all of this? Sure. Yeah, you bet. I, uh, I personally study the earliest peopling of the continent. So, you know, archaeologists, have argued this for a long time, trying to figure out the story of when people came into the continent, the, the direction, the locations, etc. You know, here in the interior in Colorado, we actually have some of the, the first sites that yielded this antiquity were found within 100 miles of Fort Collins and pushed that boundary back to about 13,000 years ago. And for decades, we thought Clovis folks were the earliest people in this continent, named after a fluted projectile point spear point that was uh, first well documented outside of Columbus, New Mexico, out of gravel pits there. Now, you know, if you think about Colorado, it's kind of in the middle of the continent, and it's kind of uh, the perhaps one of the last places that was probably colonized by early peoples, and it makes more sense to look at the coasts, especially the Pacific coast going up from Alaska, but all the way down to Tierra de Fuego in, in Chile, yeah. uh, as, as some of the earliest places people would have been, and so... Um, you know, now we're seeing that people have been here earlier than Clovis. It's arguable. Uh, 15,000 years ago is pretty comfortable for many people. Some people push it even further, kind of depending upon how you read the record and, and how conservative uh, you are about interpret interpreting some of these sites. Native peoples themselves will oftentimes say they've been here since time immemorial. Uh, and, you know, 15,000 years is time immemorial. That's a long, long, long time ago. Um, and so... Archaeologists is, is just one way of telling this story. We deal with material culture, stuff that we could find and, and date in solid geological contexts. Uh, and so, boy, it's a needle in the haystack. We find things, but goodness knows there's things out there that we've never found just yet to kind of fully flesh out the story. Sure. But for my lab, though, you know, I run a research lab at CSU, Colorado State, and we work on projects spanning the last 13,000 years. So we work on every different era all the way through the 1860s, 1870s, into the contact era when Colorado becomes a state. We have projects in all those different periods and then across all the different various ecosystems of Colorado from the, the short grass plains, way up into the high mountains above treeline, and then all the way over to the canyonlands of, of Western Colorado. So we kind of divvy up the state to kind of to, to research topics in different kinds of places. And that just gives us a lot of variety. It's a lot more fun that way and, and, and gives student opportunities to kind of work on some of these projects as well. To put it in context, how many generations is 15,000 years? How can we think about that? Yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, you're as an adult at 20 years old or so, you can start having kids. I mean, you can have them earlier than that, obviously. But if 20 years is your number, you know, that's 750 generations. So that's a lot of great, 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 great great, great, great grandparents. Um, and it becomes mind boggling, you know, to think about that because, you know, the, the 19th century, the 1800s seems like a long time ago for most of us. And, and our ancestry gets a little fuzzy before that. We don't know much about our ancestors beyond the 1800s, most of us. Uh, and so that's the blink of an eye to an archeologist in terms of time ago, that's just yesterday. Uh, so yeah, yeah it's, it, it really gives an appreciation for how long we've been here on this, on this planet. Man, uh, there was a find a year or two ago at White Sands in, where is that, Arizona, New Mexico? New Mexico, yep. That dated some footprints potentially back to like 24,000 years. My understanding now, and that was sort of a shock to the, the scientific community, my understanding now is that there are some problems with the dating there. Are you aware of this? Yeah, exactly. And I know folks that are working on both sides of the issue, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, this is why it's difficult. I mean, you want to find these things in stratified context. And so they were first discovered because they're sitting on the surface. The winds have scoured off these, these old former lake beds, exposing the outlines of, of footprints of both animals as well as humans. Uh, you can excavate out the kind of the foot pad and, and look at the gate. You can look at, you know, the spacing of them and, and you get the interplay between all these groups. You know, the contemporaneity between all of them is, is, is part of the debate. 
But in some places, they've actually dug stratified trenches. So they dug down from that surface to look at these footprints in stratified deposits uh, uh -huh. so that you can date above and below them to bracket date them because you can't date a footprint. But you can date um, materials, you know, that are above and below it in terms of organic materials. The controversy on some sides is exactly what are they dating, and in some cases, the uh, the kinds of aquatic plants that seem to be being uh, dated uh, because they identify what they are before they try to date them um, might have some different carbon uptake uh, kinds of issues, which could lead to different ways those dates um, uh, give off in terms of their carbon dates. So that's some of the controversy. Not that the footprints exist, but exactly, you know, the resolution by which we can date them. Um, and so it's gone back and forth about that. Meaning they're dating carbon materials in organic materials in the soil and getting that, that number. But there's a potential that those materials were absorbing older carbon into the plant material. Absolutely. Based upon their their uptake. Yeah. And so okay. and I think these are coming out of these are aquatic plants. And so they're um, where they're absorbing that is coming from some older deposits. Um, yeah. I mean, radiocarbon dating, a lot of people are like, oh, it must not work because we have such controversy. Well, it works just fine. It's just the mechanisms by which this carbon is acquired by all these organic materials and, and decomposition, all sorts of things. You know, there's some variables in there that you have to be cognizant of yeah. uh, in the interpretation, but it's never that the me method doesn't work. It's just that there's a lot of variables besides just, well, I have a date now and there's for it's correct. Well, th there's a lot that goes into the interpretation of that date in terms of the chemistry. Gotcha. So from what we do know and what's the, the less controversial dates, let's say, do you have an indication of how long it would have taken people upon crossing into the continent how long it would have taken them potentially to get to the mountains of Colorado? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, I, I specifically work up in the mountains, the high mountains. So, um, and I consider the high mountains above 10,000 feet. Uh, so about uh -huh. 3000 meters in Colorado. And in terms of surface area, if you just carve out that spot as a topographical line of all the different mountain ranges, it's the size of the state of Maryland in terms of real estate above 10,000 feet. So that's pretty high altitude spots up there. Yeah. And, What's interesting is, you know, during that this colonization, when people are coming in here 15 to plus thousands of years ago before that, you know, you, you're, you're in a glacial sequence, right? And our, our last glacial maximum is about 18,000 years ago. And so even our lower southern mountains uh, had glaciers at, at, at elevation. I mean, we have a little tiny, tiny little remnants here in Colorado. We're not like Montana or places north of there. Uh-huh. And even if there's glaciers, there's going to be ice patches and snowfields up there that are existing for long parts of the year, if not year round. And so in the true high mountains above 3,000 meters, we just don't get even our earliest Clovis and Folsom is really uncommon at that high elevation. We have little pieces of it here and there. Beginning about 9,500 years ago, we get an explosion of people up in the high country. And so... I think by then all that snow had really melted back and people are regularly both traversing the high mountains, but we have them in kind of cul-de-sac Cirque Lake basins that if you get in there, I mean, there's really no way out except to come back the way you've come. And so those really seem more like destinations than crossing like a high pass just to get from one mountain side to the other mountain side. Mm. Um, but definitely the interior basins of Colorado, we're fortunate that we have these really high, high mountains, but in between them, we have these basins that range from six to eight to 9,000 feet in elevation. And they're just wonderful grasslands, had water in the past in significant ways. Uh, and so in the 19th century, when we had a lot of Euro-American exploration and mapping of this area, I mean, they were essentially saying these were the Serengetis of this part of the world, just filled with elk and antelope and pronghorn and deer and, and buffalo and, and native peoples were just mapped onto these high altitude basins. And so those have been used really, really early on. So we've now found that some of our earliest sites are actually in those inter-mountain basins. So you're talking about, like, if you're in Denver, you cross over the high mountains, you get up to these basins like North Park, South Park, for the folks who do live in Colorado, right? The San Luis Valley. Exactly. Yeah, these are, so we have these basins that are immediately adjacent to our first mountain ranges in Colorado going west from Denver, and then some that are a little further 
away like the Gunnison Basin, but yeah, they're, they're higher elevations. And so we always thought that those were going to be secondarily occupied. But now we have extensive evidence from nearly all of them of these earliest peoples using those, those high altitude basins uh, early on, especially for the Folsom culture, which immediately uh, precedes or, excuse me, comes after uh, Clovis. I think they're very closely related in terms of time. Like they might overlap by about 200 years or so, um, but they're, it's right on the heels of Clovis. Uh, and so we have that pretty significantly in these high altitude basins. I have so many questions. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to um, organize my thoughts here because this just, this always just sends me on a, a bunch of tangents. But you published a paper about Clovis and Folsom points where you were researching this overlap between these Clovis versus Folsom hunters. Can you explain what that modeling is, and I guess what the differences are between these stone points and why it's a, why it's a indicator of different sort of cultural activity. Sure. Yeah, we've known about these archaeological cultures, which are named after spear points. Clovis, New Mexico, and Folsom, New Mexico, where they were first reported and, and published in the in the late 20s, early 30s. They're both fluted spear points. Now, Clovis is much larger. Folsom is smaller. Early on, the Clovis points were nearly exclusively found with mammoths. Uh, the Folsom were found with bison. And so people said, oh, maybe this is like an, an ammo issue that you have elephant guns and you have bison guns. They're different right. size points. Now we know that Clovis is also hunting bison as well and using large points. And sometimes they make small points as well. So the size really doesn't appear to be a caliber issue so much as just related to how long they use the tool, how much has been recycled, if it had been broken and, and, and refixed, et cetera. But for the most part, they're found in similar kinds of places. And in some cases, like at Blackwater Draw in New Mexico, which is the place Clovis was first described, we have them stratified that so that Folsom comes stratigraphically above Clovis. And so we knew many years ago that, that they're closely related in time, but that Folsom came after it. And the idea was if they're both fluted, meaning they have a little flake driven from the bottom of the points where you might haft it to a wooden shaft, well, is that kind of a stylistic trait, just like, you know, like a 57 Chevy Bill, or you know it based upon the, the, the style of the tail fin? That, that flute it might have a functional reason, but it also might just be a style thing that people liked and they continued on into Folsom, that they might be related as these fluted point cultures, you know, and that's, it's harder to prove that, but people have played with that idea for many years. Well, we do have instances where they're geologically stratified, right? So we know the order there, but in other cases, we just find a Clovis site here or a Folsom site there, and we obtain these radiocarbon dates. And, and recently we've been, this paper was one of several where we, and colleagues, and I'm, I'm a minor player in this whole debate, um, have been going back to sites and redating them, looking at just the animal bones themselves, because they can yield a higher precision and more accurate date about the occupation itself. Mm. And so when we have these new dates, they, they, they tend to be shorter in their error rates, which is better than something that was done 40 years ago. And because they're high resolution, we know it, it relates to when that site was occupied. So the Bayesian statistics piece is just a, is just a mathematical model that shaves off some, some pieces that um, are, are not relevant to the overall story and is trying to look at the tendencies of the Clovis dates and the Folsom dates. And when you look at them as a whole, there is actually an overlap with when Clovis is starting to, to end and Folsom is starting to begin. We have radiocarbon years where they actually overlap or calibrated years. Um, suggesting they're on the ground at the same time. Well, you know, we have them stratified. We know they're very close in time. Um, and so that kind of helps us understand that maybe Folsom is derived from Clovis, meaning they shared that kind of idea and it got modified into a new way by, by the subsequent Folsom folks. So can we think of this as a technological shift similarly to the bronze versus the iron age or something like that. Is it that significant of a change or is it just a little bit of a stylistic difference between the points? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't characterize it as a major technological change. Um, but, but I think that's a better way of thinking about it rather than a Clovis culture versus a Folsom culture. Oh, okay. Um, I think these are more preferences, um, style meaning maybe it is more just, um, something they were trying to manifest and show, show, you know, as a visual marker. Um, technological meaning that it was a, a superior design form, right, for a different kind of use. And so it's probably better to think of these tools as representing different kinds of 
traditions of how you make things, just like we have new versions of, like when, you know, we had um, different kinds of cell phones that have changed over the last 30 years that have come and gone now uh, and been replaced with our smartphones. I mean, the overall purpose of them hasn't changed. There's been some stylistic change and some technological change. Function's still kind of still the same there. Um, but those are used cross-culturally. Nobody claims them as their own cultural phone, you know, per se. So that might be a better way of thinking about some of these stone tool traditions. Within that context of the Clovis to Folsom transition, do we see a, an alteration of the way that they were hunting? Or is it a continuation of, of use of the same hunting sites, the buffalo drives, the, you know, are they doing the same thing with different tools? Oh, fantastic question. An age-old one, too, is, you know, how Clovis moves across landscapes versus Folsom versus later paleo groups. And, you know, again, this is what I study. And one of the things that changes for sure is that over that 4,000-year period from about 13,000 to 9,000 years ago, these folks love to hunt bison. And if they can get bison, they get them. It's not to say that's exclusively what they're eating, but that certainly is their mainstay. Uh, even Clovis likes bison, too. And what happens is the bison kills get bigger and bigger and bigger through time. So that, you know, Folsom, the biggest one we have is a site called Lipscomb in, in Texas, maybe 55 bison there. By Cody time, several thousand years later, we have upwards of several hundred uh, bison coming out of these, these bison kills. And there's massive of wow. bison kills. Yeah. And so um, is that a, about that herd sizes are changing? Is it, is it meaning they're becoming more dependent on bison? Is it, that group size of the humans hunting them is, is changing. Um, you know, those are all questions that we ask of ourselves. The other piece too is like, where is that site on the landscape? And what we've noticed is that, you know, river valleys, sites that are in river valleys or in foothills type settings at the edges of mountains tend to have much more diverse fauna. They tend to have lots of um, things like fire pits and things suggesting that the people are there for long periods of time. And then, Places like uplands, like the high plains themselves, which are devoid of trees for the most part and, and don't have rocks to make stone tools, but bison love them. I mean, it's it's their it's their their happy place. Um, those tend to have big bison kills, but not the big campsites that go with it. So it's an idea that maybe they're going out there hitting those bison, slaughtering a bunch of them, getting as much meat as they can carry. They're going to dry it and then sh schlep it back somewhere else but they're just not leaving as big of a human footprint in those places that would in river Valley, which as we all know, I mean, all the major cities of the West are in river systems. Um, and especially the wintertime, they throw all that fuel wood you need for, for keeping your yeah. family warm. So yeah, there's, there's both ecological things going on as well as social things going on uh, during this period. One of my favorite parts reading about the Folsom site is the, they can tell from what I understand the markings, the, the cut marks from the stone tools on the bone, which which muscle groups these people preferred. Absolutely. They would leave pieces of the animals and, and prefer to take other things. Do you remember which which parts they were taking? Yeah, I mean, it's so so well known that we call it like a gourmet strategy that, that these early <laughs> folks are just taking really good, I mean, you're, you're dismembering at the joints, and so you're taking hind and forelimbs uh, and then doing some some work on the, on the backs themselves. But but there's almost no marrow production. There's, they're not breaking the bones open uh, to pulverize, to get the marrow packet out of the, the center cavities of bones. And they're not breaking the bones and then boiling them in, in vessels or anything to get all that grease. And mm. what's striking is even though these bison kills are so huge, you know, they're minimally processing these animals as compared to about, about 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. It almost becomes um, like a factory production in terms of the quantity of, of I mean, the, the bones are getting pulverized and just boiled uh, yeah. to, to get these greases and then to, to make pemmicans, to mix with berries, um, especially on the northern plains of Montana and Alberta and Saskatchewan, um, to make massive amounts of food that you could stabilize and put into the winter times. You always hear that people use the, the entire buffalo, but it wasn't true in ancient times. They would take the tongue, the organs, the back straps, whatever, and that's it, right? Or the... Uh, quarters. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, you know, 500 years ago, you would routinely will see the cranial portion of a skull being busted open on a bison to take the brain out. Uh, we presume for tanning and other kinds of purposes. Um, but, you know, in some of these early sites, I mean, the topmost bones are butchered, you know, they're disarticulated. So they're cutting the joints apart and, 
and separating them. But as you go down into the bone bed, uh, which is just this accumulation of all these animal bones and artifacts, et cetera, um, you'll get into intact carcasses that are still articulated. They have not been butchered at all. So that meat was just left uh, uh, in, the, in the bone bed itself. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, I mean, when you have 200 plus bison, I mean, and you only have 20 to 40 people or perhaps even 100 people, that's two bison per people or per person. I mean, that that's an extraordinary amount of butchery of, as well as the meat itself. So, yeah, um, yeah there was too much meat to deal with. This would have been some of these would have been a really gruesome scene, right? The buffalo jump, let, let's say, where you've got a herd of buffalo that is driven off of a cliff. They're all at the bottom, broken bones, half dead on top of each other. It would have been pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty bloody, gory scene. Humans are coming in and finishing them off. You could see how some of the ones at the bottom of the pile never get touched. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about bison jumps, think about you know, what the arrows are doing for a bison. You don't need arrows really at the bison and a bison jump in quite the same way as other scenarios. So like the, the bison go off the cliff, you don't want it to be such a high cliff that they just completely damage all their organs and spoil the meat, you know, rip the intestines open, et cetera. But you do yeah. want them to break their legs and such. And so in that case, arrows are going to finish off the animals, right? And you could retrieve the arrows as well. So buffalo kills or jumps, um, I mean, they do have points and arrows in them uh, and and jumps tend to be later in time we don't really see as much of that activity although there are some cases we okay. think of for paleo jumps there are a couple but they definitely occur a lot more frequently later in time but there's another technique that people use to hunt buffalo that are called pounds and where they build these giant wooden corrals uh, that would use terrain and scent uh, um, as to their advantage and these wing walls will go out a tremendous distance animals would be kind of funneled into these kind of corrals just like you think of modern um, stock you know for cattle for for moving in for uh, say branding or something like that uh, and as they get closer they get into a corral and now you have in this wooden corral a bunch of animals that are trapped and in that case they're pissed off and now you need to dispatch them uh, with arrows yeah. And so, for example, we have a bison kill north of town, north of Fort Collins, 45 minutes. You know, we have 20 arrows in there, 18 bison, plus some fetal bison that have yet to be born. Wow. You go another 30 miles north of there, and we have a massive bison pound that University of Wyoming excavated. Uh, and there are several thousand arrow points in that, and that's interpreted as a pound. Uh, and those arrows were just knocking off every bison that was walking around. Uh, from one event yeah several thousand no it was used repeatedly it was used repeatedly okay. but they were pretty ticked off because you know they weren't falling off a cliff and breaking their legs they had to be dispatched a little bit differently and so those jumps and pounds are very common kinds of strategies that we see uh definitely in the last three thousand years from colorado all the way up to the the prairie uh, provinces of, of canada uh, pretty extensive yeah. use of those you've done a lot of work on these type of uh, blinds and game drives up at higher elevations, like you were talking about, above 10,000 feet. And it seems like people are using these seasonally during during the rut, I would assume. Like, wh what do you know about how people were circulating through these mountains to these hunting destinations? Yeah, I mean, we're fortunate in Colorado that we have the greatest concentration of alpine hunting sites known in all of North America. It's, it's, wow. it's really the best sample in the whole world at elevation. You know, we're talking above, uh, most of them are at, at tree line or above, so 11,000 feet and higher. Um, we've known about them since the 1870s. Uh, they were first documented then, uh, and we've aggressively looked at them since the 1960s. And they're part of a worldwide phenomena like this uh, corrals I was telling you about. Around the world, people have known how to gather game using these artificial fences in every continent except for Antarctica. We have see them everywhere. Ours are in Alpine, uh, which are pretty interesting. And, and we have these wing walls that go out, in some cases, you know, a half mile or so. They tend to be going uh, with the wind. So, so the, 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 the gathering basins is upwind. Um, the animals are kind of pushed, um, not, not aggressively, but kind of harassed to move uh, with the wind. And, then, and they tend to move from downslope to upslope. So they turn and go up slopes. And, and when they come under one of these walls, the instinct is to not jump over the wall or walk over the wall. They tend to be somewhere between 
uh, several courses of rock tall, so beginning at above your ankle, to about knee high. Uh, and we have game drive cameras and other cameras on these systems. We, we, we've seen animals you know, using them in modern sense this way as well. When they see that wall, they, they turn and they start walking along the wall. Um, and again, this is down from the wind and up the slope. They're going up slope for protection. And as they go upslope, these walls get tighter and tighter and tighter. They go from a U-shaped or V-shaped wide neck to a very narrow neck. And as they go upslope, uh, small breastworks, typically four to six feet across in diameter, are constructed near that constricted point. And we've been able to map them and do all sorts of cool spatial statistics on this. And they just, they're all clustered there. And as you get to that kind of constricted zone, it really is like this cross shooting field. I mean, you wouldn't want in a modern archer range because you might hit each other, but anybody <laughs> yeah. shooting arrows or throwing spears from a spear thrower or an atlatl, um, you know, the, the common range is, is 30 yards or something like that. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good, if you've got an archery range, that's a good range, you know, for uh, non-compound bows, you know, if you're just using uh, reef yeah. curves or, you know, traditional bows, I mean, that's a pretty good hunting range there all these shots are converging from about that distance. And it would have just been, if all those breastworks or hunting blinds are used simultaneously, it would have been this shot of arrows coming from all directions and those animals uh, just kind of drop there. So in the high mountains on those sites, we've documented for sure bighorn sheep bone. Um, we think elk are, are using them as well, uh, but we also get bison up in the high country. We don't think they're using these for bison, but that's a potential prey as our mule deer. Where they are in Colorado, though, is really significant because we have all sorts of mountain ranges and we have these high altitude basins, as we described a little bit earlier. And where those are located next to one another is really significant that on seasonal uh, bases, not only do animals move around those high altitude basins, they go up, right? They go up into the high country. And so, and that's only occurred during certain seasons. And so we think that humans mapped onto this really early on and understood this and the animals are going to very specific kinds of, of geographic places that the slope's right. It's got a good got a good grazing area there. It's got a lot of wind to keep the, the insects off them. Uh, and because the animals are going to congregating to these areas, humans built these traps to take advantage of those, those congregations of animals. So in your modeling, you had one graphic that showed this sort of counterclockwise movement from the plains up into the mountains. Can you describe why that's significant to this sort of seasonal hunting activity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I study what's, what we refer to as hunter-gatherers. So what's fascinating to me is these folks are living for thousands of years without growing any crops. They're not, they're not corn farmers. Um, they're not uh, pastoralists in the sense that the only thing they have is dogs with them. They, they don't have livestock, obviously. Oh, they did have dogs. And they had, did have dogs. Yep. Okay. And, and dogs, probably played a factor in these drives as well, but, you know, seeing the dogs is hard to see, but oftentimes we'll get dog bones in these bone beds as well. So oh, that makes uh, it even cooler. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for hunter gatherers, I mean, because they can't go to the grocery store for the food, I mean, they need all the food that they can find as well as store, you know, on a seasonal basis. And so these bands are relatively small family groups, you know, 20 to 40 people in a band. And obviously there's bands kind of spread all over in all the different valleys out here. Um, but after a while, you, you start to burn out your food patch. I mean, you can eat the plants in a local area, and then you, you're sending off your kids and, and younger folks to do hunting at progressively farther distances away from your camp, but you, you basically blow out your food patch, and they move. And so depending upon the richness of the environment, and we know this cross-culturally around the world, groups are moving upwards of you know, six or seven times a year in terms of moving their whole residence. Wow in pretty rich food environments uh, to in poor environments there. It's almost like Pac-Man is how I described to students that they're just constantly moving on a week to two week basis to a new, to a new food patch here, because we have elevation in Colorado. What's fortunate about that is if you plant, if you plant it well with plants, you know, as things are ripening in lower elevations, right. And you're going through these food patches and getting roots and berries and things as they ripen, as you move up elevation, right, they're going to, they're trailing you, they're trailing you in, in ripening. Yeah. And so you can go to a new food patch and it's continuously being renewed ahead of you. And the same thing goes with the animals. Their animals are moving through these patches as well. And so um, 
people such as Jim Benedict uh, have modeled these kind of land use strategies to look at uh, potential routes that people might have used taking advantage of all these landscapes because they didn't live in one town, right? They lived in all these different areas. And that's why Native peoples have a different concept of land and, and places because it's for, for mobile peoples, it's a huge area that they knew and they knew all the place names, they knew all the creeks, the mountains, the, the resources of this place and it became part of who they were. They were naming themselves after the places they lived in because their whole ethos about how they interacted with land was totally different than farmers yeah. or totally different than city dwellers. Uh, and so these models kind of reflect that of this kind of land use over here, kind of cycling through and taking advantage of all the different uh, food patches that would be available on a yearly basis. Would they have been traveling similarly to the big game, uh, following the big game herds, or are they sort of heading them off at the pass? Yeah, I mean, you know, some people think that they're they're following the herds and like, well, you know, without an ATV, I don't know how you can follow a herd very well. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, you know, if you're a hunter, you, you know where animals are going to be in a, in, a, in a region, at least a kind of a neighborhood within a region uh, during certain times of the year. I mean, you know, they use slopes certain ways, you know, they use you know, basin versus altitude. Um, they might go up and down a river system. Um, and now our, our collaring systems with GPSs and stuff. There's been some great migration studies in, in Wyoming that have now been published to look at the seasonal migration of the animals. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is one that shows pronghorn migration in kind of west central uh, Wyoming um, up through kind of the Pinedale country down into the Red Desert. And there's a pinch point uh, in, in Pinedale where these pronghorn all have to congregate and go through a bottleneck to get down further south into the Green River Basin. Well, where that pinch point happens to be is a place where archaeologists working with the Wyoming DOT in the uh, in the 80s and 90s excavated a massive pronghorn bone bed oh. uh, that stretched back over 7,000 years ago. Cool. Uh, so people had used that bottleneck forever because they mapped onto it and they knew the bison or the pronghorn came through that spot, and the archaeology confirmed it. You know, um, now we, whether they're going to be there on a Tuesday or Thursday uh, is one thing. Whether they're going to be there, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, at the beginning of June, later June is another matter, but you know they're going to be there. So it's kind of monitoring those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I think they, again, had much more intimate knowledge of of where to look rather yeah. than, you know, guarantee that the animals are going to be there. So they would have kind of known seasonally, hey, we need to set up camp up here at this. We've got these these blinds we've been using for hundreds of years. we got to get up there for these two weeks in September or whatever and wait Absolutely. for the animals to show up. Absolutely. And some of these, you know, a lot of these are on major passes, which are just easy travel quarters across the high mountains. Yeah. And at those passes, the biggest passes have the biggest uh, systems. And so those V-shaped drives, it might not just be one. In some cases, uh, there's one that we work in Boulder County going into Grand County, which is the first pass from Denver West up towards the ski resorts. Uh, we have 12 of those hunting systems at one pass and kind of within Man. a couple miles of it. So the idea is if the animals are up there and they make a left turn or the animals make a right turn or they go down the Continental Divide or go up the Continental Divide, you've already anticipated that and you already have your infrastructure in place. You've left it there because you built it years ago. You might tinker with it and modify it. Yeah. But they're probably not being used simultaneously, but more so is like, okay, well, they're going south this year, so we'll use this piece. They're going east this year on this ridge, we'll use this piece. Yeah. And again, it just speaks to the ingenious, you know, a mapping as well as just foresight to know that these animals are going to be coming through here. And so to anticipate that and build these systems, I mean, I think it's just ingenious. And I just I just yeah. so respect uh, these native cultures to have figured that out uh, years ago. And we still do this to some degree. People have seasonal deer camps. People have certain blind, duck blinds that they construct and they come to every year. But to, for it to happen on this scale, both physically this scale and then this temporal scale for so long to come back yeah. to these places that are so remote. I mean, if you spent time up in the Alpine areas, it's not hospitable. It's not a no, it's not no. a great place to be. So no. I just love the the tradition of coming together here. And one of the things that you were saying in one of the videos I watched was that this potentially could have been a convergence of different bands from different watersheds, uh, even coming from different parts of the mountains, 
every year to hunt together in this place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, first off, in terms of just the, the generation knowledge, I mean, for the hunters in your listening to this podcast, I mean, the fact that you'd share those traditions with your family members, let alone your children, and you're trying to pass down what you know in these special places and your read of the land, you know, that's not just now. I mean, people have been doing that for a long time, especially when you have to feed your family. You know, that's what, that is how you feed your family. I mean, how important that would have been. And then the other piece is, you know, we've lost touch with this, I think in, in our Western society a lot, but just the idea of that, of coming together and sharing, uh, you know, the common yield, right. From one of these events, um, in terms of you're bringing all these people together from disparate places, dis- disparate values, they're distant kin of yours. Um, you're learning new things from them. You're probably, people are moving between these areas pretty fluidly uh, based upon their preferences. I mean, they could change and go to a new band if they feel like it. And so there's a social piece of this, obviously, that that's just good for the human soul, as, as we all know, right? But then you bring all that labor together and if you, it's costly. You got to feed those people, so you got to have food in advance to make sure that, that they have enough to, to to be up there. But if you win out and you score big in one of these events, now you have all this extra food that you can then split up and share between all these people. So you come out ahead in so many different ways. I mean, not only just calories, right, which is part of it, but also just these social relations that just tie those by you know bind people together. And the big piece to think about is if if you didn't have the internet and you didn't have uh, insurance strategies that you pay your monthly premiums into, you know, to make sure if something happens, you have a payout, these social bonds between people in adjacent communities, I mean, prior to us doing all those things in our own societies, those social ties was the most premier, premium insurance you could get. Yeah. And so it paid, it was in their interest to, to participate in those things for so many ways. It was part of who they were. One of the, things that got me really interested in this mountain archaeology was the mountaineer site excavated by David Meltzer, who I'm sure you know, because he was at SMU, right? Yeah, he was my advisor. Yep. Oh my goodness. I've listened to to some of his stuff. And um, this this site up near the Gunnison Airport, way, way up high in elevation, that they deduced to be a winter camp that they they figured out from the bones, the growth in the bones of, of the dead animals that they died in winter. Uh, some of the deductions in the interpretation of this site were just fascinating. But what was the climate like way up there in yeah. Gunnison, Colorado, 10 plus thousand years, 9,000 years ago, whenever this was? I mean, this would have been the end of the Pleistocene, the, the early Holocene, right? Even colder than it is now. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of those early sites we were kind of talking about earlier. This is in the Gunnison Basin which is you had to take a mountain pass, Monarch Pass to get in there, or Marshall Pass to get in there from the east. On the on the west side is, is the National Monument, the Black Canyon, the Gunnison, yeah. this, this really, really deep canyon system. So it is a really can be difficult to get in there. And so um, not only are they in there, it's a high altitude basin, and not only are they doing that, this mountaineer site is on top of a mesa that's about 700, 800 feet above the valley floor of Gunnison. And if you've ever spent time in mountain settings, especially in the winter, you know, one of the things that's interesting about us is we get temperature inversions. And so even though that's higher in elevation than Gunnison, Gunnison is, is one of the ice boxes of, of Colorado, if not the whole United States. And so Gunnison can be colder than the actual elevation of the mountaineer site up, uh. up, up, up above it. And so, you know, one of the advantages in the wintertime in such a situation is obviously, you know, you would probably be snow free or less snow because it's pretty windy up there. The snow could scour that mesa top and blow the snow accumulated off the mesa. So you wouldn't have to be in as, in as deep a snow as you would in the valley bottoms. But I also, I always compare it to um, uh, kind of uh, getting some, some white yogurt, right? You get a big old bowl of white yogurt and you drop some raisins into it or whatever you want to do to, to okay. spice up the food. But all that snow in the Gunnison Basin in the wintertime, and if you brought animals in there like elk or bison, you know, not, not snowshoe hares, it's changed color, but any of those big ungulates, and you could see them from great distances. And so I think the view shed for what they could see from that mesa top, it is this incredible view shed to the east and to the west and to the north. And I think that's pretty significant to why they were there um, at that particular spot. Definitely winter encampment because they had 
little, little tiny uh, bison uh, uh, bones within the site, again, suggesting that the timing and the seasonality of it. And what's incredible is that there was clusters of debris across the site as well as daub, which was remnants of the roofs of these structures that collapsed in place and buried these artifacts in place. And, and they can refit the artifacts back together in terms of putting the pieces back together like a puzzle. So they know these two rocks or tools connect it. Typically, you know, those things are found within a house or within three or four feet of each other. It makes sense, right? That you'd break a rock and, and if you found all the pieces, you could refit it a couple feet away. Okay. But there are clusters there that are kind of spread across the site and there are refits between the clusters. Um, so not only within the cluster, but between the clusters, suggesting one of two things that either after the fact, people were scavenging and moving things between those clusters. That could be the case. Or as we all know, if you go camping with your family and you're spread out across an area and you're doing activities across the site, your trash might get distributed across the site into all these different clusters. And we think that that's what it means is that those connected pieces actually represent people moving those things across that site. Wow. Um, so to say that that's, you know, it's 12,500 years ago is when that date, that site dates to. It's in the Younger Dryas, which is actual glacial re-advance. Yeah. The coldest period humans have ever lived in North America is during that period. Um, you know, that community would have been very important to make sure that they're all doing well together and taking care of each other and, and, and sharing all the resources. Unbelievable. One of my favorite parts about that, from what I understand, from the mud, from the daub, they found imprints of uh, aspen bark so they could tell that they had these wood pole structures held together with mud am i understanding that correctly absolutely i mean the most fascinating thing about daub and we 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 look at it on fremont sites in northwestern colorado from a thousand years ago as well as the wood's gone um but because that's baked or really hardened clay you'll get these these um, circular uh, grooves through that, which is the diameter of the wood uh, that formed the superstructure. And uh, Dr. Mike Steiger, who is also uh, excavated mountaineer, he's the one that started that whole project. He spent months in the lab refitting daub uh, to get kind of these pole impressions. And you, and there you go. There's the, there is the superstructure, the, the wooden, you know, think about a dome tin or, or, yeah. In some cases, like a teepee of the, the wood that you'd need to build it. Well, there, there's the diameter of those wooden pieces. Man, that is so exciting. So you're talking about 12,500 years ago, Younger Dryas. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the, the new ideas about the Younger Dryas impact theories and the, the potential for cataclysmic impact. What are your thoughts about all that as it relates to the archaeological record? Yeah, so I mean, so we have a couple things going back to that Clovis Folsom kind of transition, which is really famous here in the plains. I mean, we have in the plains and Rockies probably some of the best records of that because we have stratified sites, you know, in, anywhere in North America. It's a really, really robust, rich record. We have really good bone preservation here as well as compared to other portions of our continent. So we're we're, we're in a special place to study this. Uh, during Clovis times, uh, at the end of Clovis times, we have a uh, extinction of a lot of uh, species. 35 mega uh, genera or megafauna species uh, go extinct, or 35 genera, excuse me, of megafauna go extinct. This is mammoths, mastodons, uh, carnivores that go with it, uh, ground slot, giant ground slots, etc. They go extinct. They they no longer exist in the in the archaeological or paleontological record after Clovis. It's always been a debate like, well, did Clovis kill all of them? You know, did they knock off every single one of those species? Well, what we know now is that the radiocarbon dates suggest that they're dying off at different rates. Some things like mammoths and mastodons last to the very end. I mean, they, they do go out at the time of Clovis, but others, we have a little spottier record. Part of it's because we don't have as many of those animal bones preserved as compared to other kinds of things. But Clovis has always been seen as a major culprit of this, you know, as, as one of the the major players. Now, part of that was the idea that for many years we thought Clovis was the first people into the continent. So it was a really pretty interesting novel idea that humans showed up, these animals had never seen humans before, and humans just knocked them off. And, and you know, mammoths and mastodons are slow breeders. Yeah. You could easily knock off slowly reproducing fauna faster than, let's say, rabbits, for example, right? Um, but if we have people here now that are here 15,000, 20,000, 25,000 years ago, that kind of 
kind of puts a dent in that kind of question as to, well, did Clovis really do it or did they just finish off what was left? Mm. What's the role of these earlier peoples with some of these, these, um, these extinction events? We also have that transition to Folsom. Like what causes that change between those projectile point styles? Um, at a lot of Clovis sites, we have a, a geological level or geoarchaeological sedimentary level that's been referred to as a black mat, this highly organic rich uh, kind of uh, deposits found on many Clovis sites, not all of them. And that's always been thought of, well, what does that represent? You know, is it, is it, is it a um, plant rich kind of environment? Is it some other way um, that this carbon is accumulating into these soils? And so people have come up with lots of reasons for how these animals went extinct. And so a recent kind of hypothesis that was proposed in the early aughts, like two, 2007, 2008, something like that, was that we had a comet uh, that exploded above the, in the atmosphere. So it wasn't an impact necessarily, although the pieces were an impact. Uh, in Eastern United States or Eastern North America at the time, um, and this caused widespread um, changes in vegetation, oftentimes due to um, fires, right? And this led to those extinctions. And so people have looked for um, particles within this black mat, these soils, right, to see if they're of extraterrestrial origin, just meaning they, they don't, they're not from the Earth's own planetary system in terms of minerals here. Um, and so some people have argued that this is only, we have concentrations of this uh, in these deposits that suggest that this, this hypothesis is true. It's gone back and forth um, in terms of proving and, or, or trying to prove and disprove whether that's actually what's going on. Um, I'd say the consensus has swung uh, to the other side that, that more people in the scientific community than not are, are not necessarily um, supporting this comet hypothesis. Okay. Um, I would say that it's just one of those things that the proponents of it keep adding more information and trying to go about further testing. Yeah. Uh, and that the community just has to keep an open mind and evaluate each new test as it comes forward. It's pretty debatable though. I mean, people yeah. have really entrenched themselves on sides on it. It's exciting to think about, especially when it's tied to oral histories of, of global flooding and and these Absolutely. sorts of things, they paint a, an exciting picture, but I understand there's there's two sides of the argument always. Yeah. Well, and talk about, I mean, we know there was massive, massive floods at the end of the last ice age. I mean, the, 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 the badlands up in the Columbia River Basin in Washington State, yep. these floods must have been of, of just catastrophic size. Uh, and obviously, people witnessed them, you know, and so, you know, catastrophe was real. It did happen in the past. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions here for you. You talked about the bone preservation being exceptionally good here. I, like many people, was probably surprised to, to hear that there's so much preserved evidence um, up in the Alpine country. What are the conditions for archaeological preservation that are ideal? Because I've always, you always hear about bogs and anaerobic environments. Is it the same up at high altitude? Yeah, great question. You know, I was talking about bison bone beds, mammoth bone beds in the plains. I mean, we have them really well preserved below, say, 7,000 feet. And okay. oftentimes it's because they were fairly quickly buried. And so that that's, leads to their good preservation. And so, and then lack of erosion later in time has certainly helped in many ways. And our soils aren't acidic. Uh, we don't have the forest soils that places that elsewhere have. So the plains are their own unique kind of system. one of the best preserving systems in all the, all the world. In the Alpine, though, like on these game drives, uh, it's tough because there's no trees up there. We're above the tree line. It is windy as heck. Yeah. And so we don't have much deposition of dirt except in the breastworks themselves. The breastworks will actually accumulate sediment because they're, they're they're kind of stopping the wind. The breastworks, you the mean, are, are the little hunting blinds that are constructed. The little hunting blinds. Okay. Exactly. So most Alpine archaeological sites don't have much depth to them. And so bone preservation is pretty spotty in sites in the Alpine, unless it's relatively recent within the last 500 to 1,000 years. Prior to that, it's hard to get bone from, from much older sites. But we have a great advantage in the Alpine because of these ice patches and glaciers. And so in certain kinds of places where snow accumulates uh, and doesn't melt, um, glaciers can form. And glaciers are just, just this place where, where the ice is, is accumulating and not melting at such a rate that it's, it's a loss every year. They eventually turn into ice. 
we have smaller kind of snow bodies that we call ice patches, which aren't permanently frozen, you know, solid thick chunks of ice that move, but they are permanent snow bodies or relatively permanent snow bodies. They tend to be on east facing slopes because the sun's, it's not protecting, it's not melting into them uh-huh. um, come August, September. They tend to be on north facing slopes again, because that's being protected from the harsh uh, summer winds. And I call them Mother Nature's, you know, ice boxes or freezers. If you have a chest freezer and you don't clean it out, <laughs> you know that you, you tend to eat the stuff on top, and the stuff at the bottom tends to get more and more frozen and you and a little funny looking, and you don't get into it as much. Yeah. And over time, these ice patches can accumulate both cultural artifacts from people using these places, but uh, as well as um, animals that use them as well. So the humans might be hunting animals that go into these ice patches. Or um, the animals are just going there and they're dying off or they slip and fall into these kind of uh, areas or crevasses as well. Now, with the last 30 years of a pretty aggressive kind of uh, global climate change where things are just, the temperature is just soared here in Colorado, these things are melting back. So, I mean, you know, there's no doubt about the ice is melting. And as they melt back, they're yielding a tremendous amount of fauna. in some cases, we're getting what we call ice trees coming out. So we'll actually have tree trunks and trees that used to be growing there. But thousands of years ago, they uh-huh. got covered by snow um, and then were buried and have been buried for all those thousands of years and are now reemerging. And what's amazing is those trees are actually above tree line today. So it tells you those trees, when they were alive, were growing in a warmer environment than the present day because they're at a higher elevation. Wow. Um, and so now they're coming out. So we have a whole series of these 4,000-year-old ice trees. Uh, what are they? Are they similar to like fir trees? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're similar to the things that are growing at, at tree line today, but they, they are several hundred feet higher in elevation. So, you know, for them to get up there is, means that the trees overall were growing at a higher elevation in the past. So they're cool paleoenvironmental sig- signatures. We have several cultural sites in Colorado that we found, my research lab has found, where we found stone tools in these ice patches where we think people are hunting animals, including a bison. We have a bison uh, with a stone tool near it. We don't have it in the rib cage or something up on one of these ice patches near a, a major pass uh, near I-70 of all places, the major highway that cuts our state in two. Um, but in places like the Yukon or Alaska, or even in Norway, which is a, the most spectacular examples, their ice patches are yielding just extensive amounts of human hunting and traversing at these places, especially Norway, where they're getting hunting sites, they're getting Viking swords, they're getting tunics, they're getting dogs with leeches oh. around their necks still, uh, all several hundred, if not thousands of years old, documenting that story of traversing these these, these alpine countries. They're lower in elevation, obviously, in Norway, but still Arctic uh, environments. Um, so we keep searching our mountains for these, um, and, and uh, but... Uh, a little bit different. Ours are mostly paleobiological, helping us reconstruct the past. Um, many of them, though, have had bison remains in it, which is amazing to think we have bison at elevation traversing these highest ranges at 12, 13,000 feet. Um, and uh, we always used to think those were must be um, refugees from the 1870s that ran away to get up in the mountains to avoid all the hunting. We have them over 3,000 years old now up in the mountains of Colorado, suggesting they were living up in that elevation. A long time ago. Moving forward in time here, what do we know from from the more recent peoples that lived here, the Ute peoples? What do we know about their oral history and how it relates to what you're finding? Is there continuity there? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, I I just want to emphasize that archaeology is is just one side of this story and it, it deals with material culture. And so like if we find it, we can talk about it, but it's certainly incomplete, right? Right. And so native peoples themselves, the descendants of these people that occupy these mountains are, are another a source of information. And their stories are oftentimes similar, but sometimes different than the things that archaeologists have to say. And it's really in the blending of them together that a more robust uh, story can be told. And so many of the things I've been talking about are, are the traditional homelands of, of the Ute people today, which are um, there's three different Ute uh, tribes. Um, that live in Utah and in Colorado on reservations. They live off reservations as well, but uh, they were given reservation lands in the 1860s and 70s. 
Um, but they are parts of uh, um, the descendants of 12 different bands of, of Utes that lived in Utah um, and Colorado um, in the ancient past. And where those folks lived, I mean, their epicenters were in the bottom valleys. So uh, you live in Glenwood, so that the Colorado River Valley from Glenwood down to, to Grand Junction is, is an ideal place for people to live. Yeah for good chunks of the year and they can go up to the high country, which is adjacent to it and pop back down up on the Yampa and the white river to the North towards Meeker. There's another good area down by Montrose on the, on, um, on the Gunnison is another great area. And so these, these bands kind of set themselves up on specific areas. One was in the San Luis Valley, one of these high altitude basins, for example. So they were certainly traversing these mountains and using them in, in similar ways as, as I'm describing to you today um, in terms of their stories about um, their kind of mythology and kind of their creation stories. I mean, we get some similarities there um, in terms of the things that they did for their subsistence. I mean, they, they were doing similar kinds of activities as well. So yeah, I think there's a good uh, um, a match between those. Um, what's challenging is as we get farther and farther back in the time, you know, cultures don't necessarily live a, leave a business card to tell us who they were. And oftentimes we just have broken stone tools, maybe some pottery within the last 2000 years and, and some bone tools, et cetera. And as we get farther and farther back, you know, who these people were other than native people, they were indigenous people. It's hard to sit to, to label them a specific group of people. And so that can get difficult because archaeologists tend to be a little more vague about that. And we use terms like close and fulsome. And but we don't know what tribal group used those things. And so that could be challenging because we want to give all the credit to native peoples uh, for living here for thousands of years and all the wonderful things that they and their families have done. But the material culture makes it difficult for us to, to talk about specifics. And so um, that can be challenging in some ways, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, no language, no, you know, no evidence other than than stone. It, it makes sense. Well, yeah. um, Dr. LaBelle, this has been really fascinating for folks like me who have a million more questions and uh, want to keep learning about this stuff. Where would you like to send them? Websites, any books, anything like that? Gosh, there's so much. I mean, you know, uh, two books I'd recommend if you enjoyed the Folsom material we talked about, like Mountaineer. Uh, there's a, a wonderful book on the Mountaineer site and another book on the Barger Gulch site, um, both in Colorado, both Folsom sites recently excavated that talk about these ancient people living in these intermountain basins. They're both on Amazon, uh, written by colleagues of mine. Uh, they're wonderful places to, to, to look. Um, in terms of some of this mountain archaeology, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously you can look at uh, things like academia.edu or ResearchGate, where a lot of my papers are, are available for download for folks to, to take a look at those kinds of things. We have a wonderful Ute Museum in Montrose, Colorado. So if you're on the Western Slope, uh, it is dedicated to the Ute culture. And so that is a great place to visit uh, some fine museums, uh, the Museum in Northwest Colorado and Craig. The Museum of Western Colorado and Grand Junction and History Colorado in downtown Denver are places I'd recommend uh, as well. So, yeah, lots of good things out there for you to take a look at uh, on the web or in person. And what is your research your research group called? The Center for? Yeah, my research group is the Center for Mountain and Plains Archaeology, which is um, grant funded. Uh, and we work on with undergrads and grad students and volunteers uh, throughout all the different ecosystems in Colorado and, and beyond. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, doctor. This is awesome. I hope, uh, I hope sometime we can follow up. I'd love to, if you need a volunteer to, uh, carry things up into the mountains or anything like that, I'd love to play archeology span for a day. I think if I, if I, uh, had a different career path, it would have been similar to yours. This stuff is just so fun to think about. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, it's a, it's a privilege to do this work. I'd much rather take the help carrying it up the mountain than, than down the mountain. It's a lot, of, a lot easier going downhill. Um, yeah. But yeah, always, uh, we're always happy to chat about these topics and share this knowledge. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Okay. Have a good one. Talk Bye-bye. soon. Bye.